Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see all of you again. Um, my, uh, my wife is recovering. She normally just loves to come and just absorb pearls of wisdom from her beloved husband. And I, there have been tears that she has not been able to come and be here and have me tell stories about her. Um, I actually, I have a great one that, uh, you know, it's, there's, this, there's this joke among ministers that, you know, that's a great story. Now I just got to find a text uh, to go with it. And I've got one of those, but I'm not going to spoil it and use that one before she gets here so she can get the full force of my, uh, my telling stories on her there. So uh, she's somewhere I know that she is rolling an eye. Uh, because she, there's just something in the force that has just said, he's talking about me, isn't he? Well, y'all, we have uh, two things to do today. I'm, I'm struggling with my content, and the reason that I'm struggling with it is that we, there's a particular class that I teach at Sanford called, it used to be called Biblical Perspectives, now it's called Biblical Foundations, but it's kind of an introduction to the Bible, and I have taught this one particular class probably 80 times. Um, and so, and it's, it's weird because I actually enjoy teaching it. It's one of these introductory classes and normally, you know, you, you hear a faculty that, you know, they, once they've gotten to a certain point, they don't want to teach their introductory classes. They just like to do their upper levels. Love doing my upper levels, love teaching Hebrew, but I really like this particular introductory class. And I have gotten that class after 80 iterations of it to the point where I can end on the right word at the right time, you know, just about every time. Except that my classes at Samford are an hour long, and I have 50 minutes here, and so I keep struggling to figure out how to put that last 10 minutes in, and that certainly happened last week. I was supposed to tell you what the point of Mark was last week, but we just didn't have time. And so uh, that, uh, it's going to be interesting because uh, the end of Mark is a cliffhanger, and that's what I tried to leave you with last time. We're going to talk today at the beginning about... Um, why Mark is the way that Mark is, what Mark is trying to accomplish. And then we'll move on from there to our second topic, which is the fun subject called the synoptic problem. So if you take a look at your handout, you'll see there at the beginning that I have a, a little section called Understanding Mark. If you didn't get a handout, please be sure to do that because I've got a, a few things on there for you today. But uh, the, the Gospel of Mark ends in a very unusual way. Uh, I've included for you the last verse of Mark, but let me read the first seven verses of Mark chapter 16 that lead up to that. It says, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. So in other words, this is after the crucifixion has happened, and so we're now at the place where Jesus has been buried, and they haven't had an opportunity to prepare the body for burial properly. The, the issue is Jesus dies right before uh, sunset. It's the beginning of the Sabbath, and so you, you can't do anything uh, for the body on the Sabbath. Well, by the time the Sabbath is ended, it's now Saturday night, and it's dark, so we're not going to be able to do anything then. So the first opportunity they really have to do something with Jesus' body would be early Sunday morning. So that's what they're going to do. Verse 2, it says, And very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, they had been saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. 
He, is, uh, he has been raised, he is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So that's the first seven verses of that chapter. And now here is the last verse of the Gospel of Mark, which you have there on your handout. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And that's where it stops. That seems like a terrible way to end a story of Jesus. <laughs> they all got scared, and they ran away and didn't say anything to anyone. And you're going... And then, <laughs> what happens after that? There is no after that. This was disconcerting enough to the early church that they actually supplied additional endings to Mark. If you were to take your Bible and open it up, um, depending on which version you have, if you look in the New Revised Standard, it will say, the sh after uh, verse 8, it will say, the shorter ending of Mark. And then after that, it will say, the longer ending of Mark. And you look at these and go, well, was this like, you know, it, it was re-released, it's the director's cut, you know, and how text criticism can save your life. And the reason for this is because if you look closely at those additional endings of Mark, some of them have some pretty wild stuff in there. For example, in the longer ending of Mark, that's where you, you see the line where it says that, um, you know, you'll, uh, you'll drink poison and it will not harm you. And if you pick up any deadly snake, it will not harm you and so forth. And so this is the, the, the line in which residents of our fair state have gotten notions of things like snake handling and, and such like that. It's from a, an ending to Mark, which was not written by Mark the Evangelist. It was something that the early church added, and they added it for a reason that you can understand. These originally were documents that were passed from church to church to church, and the assumption was made Somebody lost the last page. And so they tried to sort of bring the Gospel of Mark into conformity with what the other Gospels said. And so they're, they're quite similar to some of those other endings. But they also had some, some things in there that I think, frankly, if I'm going to, to drink poison or pick up snakes, I'm going to need more than one verse on the backside of, of one Gospel. I think I'm going to need several texts that kind of point in that direction. This is how text criticism can, in fact, save your life. What is Mark doing by ending his gospel where he ends it at verse 8? Because it's deliberate. What Mark is doing is he is giving us a cliffhanger. He is wanting us to read this gospel and then say, but wait a minute, there has to be more. And what he wants us to do is to look again. He wants us to dig deeper, to, to go back into this in a, a more serious and intent way. I, I have a, a particular illustration that I use with my students. There was a movie that came out in the, uh, in the 80s. I think it was called um, All the Right Moves. Maybe that's not quite, I don't think that's the name of it. It, was a, it had uh, Kurt Russell and Robin Williams in it. And I think I've got the wrong title because I think All the Right Moves may be the Tom Cruise movie. Um, but in any case, uh, the, it'll come to me in a moment. Well, in this movie, if you watch it, and it's been so long, I don't really know whether it's a good movie or not. I just know that I happened to watch it once as a teenager. Well, Kurt Russell is the star quarterback of the local high school team. And he's, he's, you know, it's one of these, he's from this, you know, Pennsylvania, it's got to be, it's this sort of mill town, and he's trying to escape, and he's got his shot. 
that if he can just play well against their arch rivals in the upcoming game, then the scouts are going to be there looking at the, the players on the other team, which is far better. I mean, this is one of the, this is like Wes Jefferson playing Hoover or something. And so if he can just somehow beat Hoover, they'll notice him, he'll get a scholarship, and, and this will change his fortunes. And so there he is. He has managed through the, the brilliance of his play to get them within one score. There are seconds to go in the game. They have the ball. He draws up the play in the huddle, and they're going to do it. He drops back. And he's looking for someone to throw the ball to, but everyone's covered. I mean, except for Robin Williams. Robin Williams is there. He actually has his real glasses on inside his helmet. He's waving his arms, you know, flailing about like this, saying, throw me the ball. Kurt Russell looks around, surely there's someone else that I can throw the ball to, but there's no one. And finally, he's about to be sacked. He throws the ball. Robin Williams has the ball. It hits him in the hands. It goes up in the air. It hits him again, and then it falls to the ground. They lose the game. And this has a profound effect on the, the future lives of these two individuals. Kurt Russell does not get the scholarship. He ends up in a dead-end job. Robin Williams, being this bright, nerdy guy, ends up being a, a successful psychologist, racked with guilt over the fact that he ruined Kurt Russell's life, and it's, uh, this is the way the movie plays out. Kurt Russell just can't let it go. And so finally, that's all that's there. On the other side, everyone looks like they either have stepped away from their NFL career or are on prison release. And they, they've showed up there. The coaches on the other side, they have the headphones and headsets and so forth. And, and you know, they've got these wonderful uniforms. And it, th this is going to be a slaughter. And yet somehow through the game, Kurt Russell, through the majesty of his play, has arranged it so that at the end of the game, they are within a score. And they have seconds to go. He draws up the play in the huddle. He drops back, and, and he's looking for someone to throw it to. Everyone's covered, except for Robin Williams, who is out there wailing, you know, is flailing his arms about like this. And so Kurt Russell has no choice. He throws the ball. It hits Robin Williams in the hands, and, and the movie stops. My mother yelled at my father because she was convinced that he had stopped the movie at that point just to torment her. That was not actually what happened. It was one of these, and you all will remember these days, my students have no conception of this, but you remember when they used to have like a free HBO weekend? And what we had done was we had recorded the movie on our VCR. It's, you know, it's the kind of thing that Moses used to have uh, with one of those. And, and so we had recorded it, and the tape had run out with the ball in the air just like that. When my mom figured out that my dad had not stopped the movie in order to torment her, she runs to the car, drives across Pleasant Grove to the, the little hole in the wall. It wasn't even a blockbuster at that time, certainly not Pleasant Grove. Uh, you know, whatever the video store was, rented the movie, fast forwarded all the way to that point so that she could see what happened, which I'm certainly not going to tell y'all. Um, <laughs> I get a commission from Robin Williams and uh, State and from Kurt Russell for the number of people who've watched this movie just to find out, oh, don't you tell back there what happens. That's the best of times. That's it. It's not all the right moves. It's best of times. Thank you very much. Um, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting movie to watch because what, well, what happened in that moment is I don't think my mom really cared is he is giving us a cliffhanger, but not to set us up for a sequel to set us up and go and look back at Mark again and figure out what the disciples missed. There's a reason why Mark has this theme of the disappointing disciples, the disciples who just don't get it. Mark is setting us up to say, don't be like the disciples who didn't get it. Look again. 
Now, interestingly, right in the very center of Mark's gospel, there are two passages that sort of illustrate this notion of looking again. And I want to show you how I, I think these are the key passages in Mark, actually. You'll notice that um, you'll see there in Mark 8, I've got it uh, listed for you there, that in verse 22 it says, They came to Bethsaida. Some people brought a blind man to him, in other words, to Jesus, and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had put saliva on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Can you see anything? The man looked up and said, I can see people, but they look like trees walking. And you go, okay, was he suddenly slipped into the Lord of the Rings and there goes tree beard or something here? No, what he's saying is, I, well, I can see people, but they look blurry, I think is the idea. They're blurry. Apparently the man wasn't blind from birth because he knew what trees look like and so forth. I, I see something, but, but it's blurry. Isn't that odd? Here Jesus has done a miracle, but it didn't take or it only took part way. He's done the miracle, but the man isn't able to see completely. He can see, but it's blurry. Look what happens next. It says, then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he looked intently. Now, this is where Mark's lack of antecedents kind of causes us problems. Who's doing the looking here? It's not that Jesus is giving him the stink eye and really looking at him this time. It's the man. The man is looking intently, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. What Do not even go into the village. In other words, don't tell anyone. Notice how that paragraph is mirrored by the next one. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you're the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Notice how both of these paragraphs start off with a place descriptor. On the one hand, they go to Bethsaida. On the, in the next paragraph, they go to Caesarea Philippi. They both have a question. Uh, on the one hand, Jesus asked the man who was blind, can you see? And then he asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? In both cases, they have partial solutions. In the first paragraph, I, I can see, but the people are blurry. In the second one, well, you're Elijah or John the Baptist. And then there's that moment when there's that second look. That second attempt where the man looks intently and he can see clearly, where Peter is asked again, who do you say that I am? And it finally seems to dawn on him, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. And then they both end with don't tell anyone what has happened here. These two paragraphs, I believe, capture the theme of Mark's gospel. And Mark as a whole leads us right up to the man who's able to see, but it's blurry. And leads us to the disciples who have almost gotten it. Well, you're, you're one of the prophets or something like that. And Mark is saying that, that pivotal question, look again. Who do you say that I am? What Mark wants us to do is to look again and figure out who this Jesus character is. And so I think in part what Mark has done is he's used the disciples as a foil. He has hide who this character is. And isn't that what happens in the book of Acts? 
Because you get same of that sum of you know, pugnacious refusal to understand who Jesus is even in Luke's gospel, but in Luke's sequel, the book of Acts, what a transformation takes place from the last chapter of Luke to the first chapter of Acts. Suddenly these disciples get it, and Luke, I, I mean the Peter of Acts chapter 2 is almost unrecognizable compared to the Peter of the Gospels. Or take, well, you know, I, was, I can't remember who, with whom I was speaking last time, but in talking about how no one gets it in Mark's Gospel, even Jesus' family doesn't seem to get it. Isn't it interesting that the leader of the Jerusalem church in the book of Acts will be James, the brother of Christ? a character who does not even seem to have been a follower of his brother during the Gospels. Something happens. What happens? At the resurrection, they look again, and they see more clearly who this character is, and they become radically changed. Mark's Gospel is a Gospel that is encouraging us, look again, look and see who this character is. This is the Messiah. Follow him. So... That is what I think is going on in Mark's gospel. But Mark is not the only gospel. There are other gospels as well. And the question becomes, well, well what are their themes? What is it that the, these other gospels are supposed to contribute to um, this message of Jesus? And so give me one second. I, I loaded the wrong uh, little document here. Um, to, to, Boy, I'm, I'm getting so savvy with my tech and everything that I have managed to uh, load the wrong story. There we go. Um, if my students saw me doing this, they would... There we go. All right. So um, the uh, Mark's gospel has its own particular theme, but what are the themes of these other gospels? Well, what's interesting, and, and I'm sure many of you have heard this before, you, you know this by now, that the Gospels really fall into two categories. So you have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which fall into one category, and we call those the synoptic Gospels. And then we have John, and John is just a, a sort of creature all unto its own. Uh, one of the, the quiz questions I have for my students, which I give them the answer to, is how much of John is unique to John? And the answer is 90%. It's, it's really quite astonishing. If John has it, the synoptics pretty much don't. If the synoptics have it, John pretty much doesn't have it. And even where they do have it, they don't really overlap in terms of their language and such. What, where they, they tell similar stories, but boy, you can tell Matthew, Mark, and Luke go together. And, excuse me. And John doesn't quite go together with them. Now, we'll eventually, uh, toward the end of our series, we'll talk about John and what is it that John's doing that makes him like that. Well, the reason they call the synoptic gospel, and then optic, obviously, to look. A synopsis. Think about what a synopsis is. It's where you take a giant work and you put it into one paragraph that you can look at all at one time. That's the way the synoptic gospels are. You can actually take the synoptic gospels, you can set them side by side, and you can look at them all at once and see how they relate. If you take your hand out, I'm going to come back to this later, on the back of it, I've actually included a, a little picture, a little screenshot there from uh, what's called the synopsis of the four gospels. And if you look at it, and we're going to come back to this later, and I apologize that the print is not any larger than it is. You should be me up here trying to do it without my reading glasses. Um, when you look at this one, you can see how the lines just match up right across the page. And then there's John over there on the side. John doesn't really match up with it. 
these gospels are called the synoptic gospels because they overlap so much. Now, let me kind of clarify the nature of the overlaps that these gospels have. So turn back to the front of your handout there, if you would, and I'll, uh, I'll talk about this pivotal moment I, uh, I normally get to say to my students that I feel confident that I am the only person in the room that actually witnessed the moon landing live. And the reason that I can say that is because my students are so young and I know that my mother, because she told me and she wouldn't lie to me, held me up when I was four months old to our television so that I could one day say that I saw the moon landing live. And so the television is probably about the size of this table with a screen about the size of the cross there. And my mom held me up to the screen. Uh, I was born in April and this was in July so that I could one day say I witnessed the moon landing. It was a memorable experience. I know we were all moved. I probably cried. Um, so <laughs> that's where it all started, right? Um, well, imagine that we have three reporters uh, who are telling us about this event. Look, look at uh, Roman numeral one here. Author number one, this first reporter, is going to say, Neil Armstrong climbed down the ladder and talked about what an important achievement this was for humanity. Okay, so that's our first author. Look at the way that our second author puts it. Neil Armstrong descended from the Eagle landing craft and said his step on the moon was a step for all of humanity. And then we have author number three. He puts it this way. An astronaut named Neil Armstrong stepped onto the moon, declaring it a great accomplishment for the world. Now, my question would be, is it necessary for these three authors to have copied from one another? Now, I would look at this and I would say no. I mean, sure, there, 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 there's some similarities there. They're all talking about the same event. But there are other explanations besides copying for how they could have this. For example, this is pretty wild, maybe they just all saw the event. And so they all saw the event, they all listened as Walter Cronkite was narrating it and so forth. And so as they went to you know, submit their proofs for their paper the next day, they just, they had all seen it or, or maybe they didn't see it. But they heard about it from somebody else who had seen it and so they write, but it's not close enough or so close that you have to say somebody copied from somebody else, okay. Let's try Roman numeral two, though. Neil Armstrong climbed down the And then author number three, an astronaut named Neil Armstrong stepped onto the moon and declared, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Surely, in this case, the authors must have copied from one another. I mean, it's verbatim, right? I mean, they, they all say, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And, and surely you're going, well, no, Jeff, they don't all have to copy from one another. It's just a quote. And I would agree. There are probably thousands of quotes that we share in common in this room. There are quotes that I could start and you could finish. I mean, think of the number of Proverbs. A stitch in time saves nine, right? You know, a penny saved is a penny earned. How many of these kind of quotations are out there that we all share in common? We didn't even all hear them from the same person. We, in fact, there, there are stories that we know where we can say, I'll huff. And I'll puff. Well, how did we all get this? I mean, I, you didn't have Mrs. Hill as your second grade teacher who read this to you. I mean, you had somebody else that... See, we don't all actually have to even hear it from the same source. And we may have multiple generations in between the original story and us. But we all share these kinds of quotations that are there. 
And then there's Roman numeral three. When the eagle landed on the moon, an astronaut named Neil Armstrong climbed down the ladder and said, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. But then, of course, author number two says, when the eagle landed on the moon, an astronaut named Neil Armstrong climbed down the ladder and said, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, which is quite similar to author number three who says, when the eagle landed on the moon, an astronaut named Neil Armstrong climbed down the ladder and said, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. In this case, my argument is somebody copied somebody else. And the way that you know this is because they're not just telling a similar story, like the first example, and they don't just have a shared quotation, like the, the second example, but even the narrative framework around the quotation is the same. Every once in a while, it pains me to admit it, I will have a student who will cheat on an assignment, yea, even at a Christian university like Samford, in a class taught by a religion professor, where they have arrived in my class because they are well nigh one of the elect of the elect and because of having men in my class will get to sit in Jesus' lap when they go to heaven and yet even they will sometimes cheat on one of my assignments. I remember vividly, I, I used to have my students answer these questions and they would submit them via email and I, I had a, a couple of guys that they were at least partially literate and had submitted assignments along the way which were of accord with their mastery of the English language and then one day, I got this assignment. And lo and behold, a transformation had taken place. And, and there, I mean, it was just, it was eloquent prose, and it was complete sentences, and you know, like curious vocabulary words that I had not seen from them before. Well, because they submitted them via email, all I had to do was just type in the search line a sentence from it, and sure enough, up popped three assignments. My two young gentlemen, and one young lady's assignment. And I pieced together, like, uh, like I'm Sherlock Holmes, what had happened here, that these two gentlemen had copied this young lady's homework verbatim. Now, I, I, I really, I, you know, it's not that I, I'm upset about the learning experience that they missed out on. It's more their assessment of my level of intelligence that I would not pick this out. I, I don't mind somebody not learning in my class. I just don't like them to think of me as stupid, that I wouldn't be able to catch this, and yet this is what they did. And so uh, it was, it's, you know, it's, it's curious. It's actually the only email I've ever gotten from a parent other than just a, an email. You know, I've, I've gotten a few emails saying thank you, or, you know, my, my daughter was in your class or my son was in your class and they loved it and so forth. The only one I've ever gotten as a parent kind of interceding uh, on behalf of their student, the mom said, my daughter should have known. <laughs> she, she didn't do it maliciously. She, these guys said, hey, could we use your homework as a guide? And she didn't know that they were going to do this. And so I actually, I, you know, I had penalized all three of them quite severely. So the, the boys kept their penalty. And I reduced the penalty for the young lady a bit there. But it's, it's nice. I, you hear of helicopter parents. And thankfully, I've not really gotten that uh, as part of my, uh, my Sanford career there. How is it that you tell when someone has copied from someone else? You know, I, I did have another moment when I was reading those assignments and, and I saw this line and then I, in another assignment I saw it again and another assignment I saw it again. I did the same thing. I typed it out in the search box and about 15 assignments came up. 
And I thought, oh, no, please, Lord, don't let the entire class have cheated on me here. I don't want to fail the whole class. And it wasn't that. They had a particular question, and they were supposed to look at this particular paragraph in a book, and they were all quoting a line from that one. And in that case, well, that wasn't a problem. But if I had noticed that several of the assignments had said the exact same language, as I was reading Richard Friedman's book on the documentary hypothesis, I noticed that, and then they had the quote, well, then you would know somebody was copying from somebody else. It's the same narrative framework around it. And when we achieve that you know, sort of level of recognition that that's what's going on, there's this question that comes up, and they call this the synoptic problem. Truthfully, saying the synoptic problem is kind of problematic because it suggests to us that it's a problem that they copied from one another, and that is not the issue. What we're talking about here is not at all an issue of plagiarism. This is not a question of did they inappropriately copy. Everyone copies in the ancient world. Plagiarism is something that only happens after there's the printing press. Because once you can make money off of your writing, that's when it becomes a problem to steal somebody else's stuff. If you're in the ancient world, you're supposed to copy from other people's works. And as a literate reader, you're supposed to know that this part was drawn from that other work and kind of know that literary history that's there. If you read, I mean, my goodness, you could read the Gilgamesh epic. And the Gilgamesh epic that we read today is one that has gone through multiple iterations, and each time they copy and adapt, copy and adapt. It was the thing to do to copy these kinds of works in antiquity. It is not the least bit of a problem that they copied. What we're really dealing with here is not the synoptic problem, but the synoptic puzzle. Who copied whom is our question. We're not upset at them that they copied. We just want to know, well, who was it who did the copying and from whom? Now, the majority opinion, and when I say majority, probably about 90% of Gospels scholars um, would say that the chart that's at the bottom of your handout is the way that the Gospels end up sharing their material, okay? And so let me give you an idea to start off with. The, the way that we describe this is that it begins with the notion of what's called Markan priority. That's a fancy way of saying Mark wrote first. And so Mark was the first gospel to be written. I think Mark was written in the 60s. Um, he's, written, he's writing right before the, uh, the time of the first Jewish revolt. And when we get to Luke, I'll actually tell you why I think that's the case. But so Mark writes first. That's called Markan priority. Matthew and Luke copy from Mark. Now think of how that's because Luke copied Mark. And if you have a place where all three have it, it's because Matthew and Luke copied Mark. That's simple enough. But there is another species of material. There is some material that Matthew and Luke have, but Mark doesn't have. Well, if Mark doesn't have it, Matthew and Luke couldn't have copied it from him. So the, the theoretical source that scholars posit for the material that Matthew and Luke share in common is what's called Q. And you see that there on your chart, right? So Q is just shorthand for a German word, Kavella, which is a fancy word which means source. 
I'm sure the German scholar who came up with this word, source, you know, he named his dog Hunt or something, you know, is dog, come here. You know, he lives in, you know, welcome to Casa House or something. It's just, it, it's not the most creative name, but it just means source. Now, what's very curious about Q is it is almost entirely sayings of Jesus. What Q basically was, was a Bartlett's quotations, but with only one person doing the quoting and only quoting one person. Q is a digest of quotations from Jesus. Over and over again in the Gospels, when you find material that Matthew and Luke have in common and Mark doesn't have it, it's going to be a quotation from Jesus. Now, we don't have Q anymore. There is no document Q that they've found in some you know, cave down by the Dead Sea or something like that. We can only reconstruct Q by the material that Matthew and Luke share in common. But it doesn't seem problematic to me to think that somebody might have collected a, you know, a, compiled a list of quotations from Jesus. All right, so why do they call this the two-source hypothesis? Because Mark and Q are the sources. Well, you'll notice on your chart, I've also got two other categories, right? Special Matthew and Special Luke. All Special Matthew and Special Luke are is Special Matthew is the stuff that Matthew has that nobody else has. And you, if you, in fact, if you look on the back, I've given you just a little bit of a, a, a summary of a few of those things. Notice, for example, the story of the Magi, the wise men. We've actually talked about this before in uh, one of the, the Christmas time uh, uh, sermons or lessons that I've done here. The story of the Magi, that's only found in Matthew. The story of the flight to Egypt, you know, where the Holy Family goes down to Egypt, that's only found in Matthew. You know, the, the, the blessing on Peter, where Peter says, you know, you were the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus says, you know, you are Simon, you know, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, you know, I'm going to name you Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's only found in Matthew's gospel. Uh, Matthew really likes Peter, and so another story uh, is Peter walking on water. Remember when Jesus walks on water, uh, and we know that Peter gets out as well. Actually, the, the part about Peter getting out of the boat is only found in Matthew's gospel. Uh, the, the, at the crucifixion of Jesus, where Pilate washes his hands of the death of Jesus, that's, for example, uh, or another example of special Matthew. And just like you have special Matthew, you have special Luke. So that special Luke is material that only Luke has. So uh, the story of the birth of John the Baptist. Remember when Zachariah is in the temple, the angel appears to him and so forth. That's only found in Luke's gospel. Whereas Matthew has magi, Luke has the shepherds. Only Luke's gospel has the shepherds who come to visit baby Jesus there. Remember that uh, wonderful story of Jesus as a 12-year-old? Uh, when he's in the temple, and uh, we'll, hopefully when I get to Luke, we'll have time to talk about that one. Um, that's only found in Luke. The story of Zacchaeus uh, is only Luke. And then the two most famous parables of Jesus, the, the prodigal son and the good Samaritan, those would be special Luke. Now, what this does, this little chart that you've got here, it sort of outlines for us the relationships among the Gospels. It shows us how they can overlap, and it gives us a solution to the synoptic puzzle. Well, surely the synoptic puzzle isn't just fun for biblical scholars who like to just conjure up these things, create problems that they can thereby solve, you know, kind of like math teachers or something. Ooh, watch this. You know, that surely there's more to it than that. Well, actually, I think there's something quite good about the synoptic puzzle. It helps us more than any other technique we have for identifying the themes of the various Gospels. 
Let me show you what I mean. I want you to look at this one example that I've given you here. Uh, it's uh, that, that uh, little screenshot from the uh, synopsis of the four Gospels. This is the book that I encourage you to buy. It is a wonderful book. If you want to study the Gospels, I cannot recommend a book more highly than the synopsis of the four Gospels because you can just see immediately, it leaps off of the page, how one Gospel is different than another and helps you to see what the relationships among them are. Well, this is that story where Jesus talks about, if any man would come after me. Do you see how it's laid out here? You've got Matthew's column, Mark's column, Luke's column, John's doing something different there. And do you see how every once in a while you've got little gaps in the text to accommodate places where there's something in one gospel but not in another? Well, take a look in Matthew's gospel. Jesus told his disciples, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Go across to Mark's gospel. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Which of these seems more um, intense to you? Matthew and Mark or Luke? Yeah, most people say Luke, right? Let's look at another one because I think it might go along with that. If you go a little bit further down, if you go back to Matthew's column, for whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Look at, look at Matthew, uh, sorry, Mark's column. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? Do you notice that Luke has a different word where it says life? Instead of forfeits his life, he has forfeits himself. I think you could again take that as more intense. You're losing your very soul, right? Truthfully, I'm not sure Luke's is the more intense passage. Because I think Matthew and Mark on the one hand and Luke on the other are countenancing different kinds of opposition. I think Matthew and Mark are talking about real-life martyrdom. You can't take up your cross and be killed daily. You only do that once. And if you follow me, Jesus is saying, you may well die. Matthew and Mark are writing to a group of people who are on a knife's edge where the cost of following Christ may actually be their lives. Luke is writing at a different place. And when Luke writes, the threat of actual martyrdom is not as intense. And so what Luke has done is he has subtly shifted the language of Jesus away from actual martyrdom and to daily self-sacrifice. In fact, that's more often how we use that phrase, isn't it? If we say to ourselves, well, that's just the cross I have to bear, what we mean is, that's something I have to give up. I, you know, I'll, I'll use a trivial example. There was a time when I was a teenager, and I could, on my drive home from school, stop at Burger King and get the bacon double cheeseburger meal, and then go home and eat supper, and then later that night, like a hobbit, have second supper or something like that, and then a midnight snack, and I you know, kept my girlish figure and just was fine. Today, if I drive past a Chick-fil-A, I can actually feel the pounds, you know, as they come on. Having to resist getting what I want at Chick-fil-A, it's just the cross I have to bear. 
Now, that's a very trivial example. But the truth is, a life of faith is a life of self-sacrifice. One of the key ideas of a life of faith is saying you don't get what you want. I, I performed a wedding ceremony just last night for two wonderful students that I had formerly had. And one of the things I was you know, emphasizing with them was to say that you're making a commitment to be with this other person. And part of that commitment is a commitment to say no to all of the other candidates that are out there from this point and saying, take up your cross every day, self-sacrifice to follow me. And that's why instead of having just life, he also says that you, you don't want to give up yourself, your very soul is the idea. Now, which of these two lines did Jesus say? Well, I'm not entirely sure. I think my, my, my instincts are probably more on the Markan side of this. But I think Luke's is a fair application of Jesus' words to a new situation. But isn't it interesting the way that Luke applies them? He doesn't do it the way that I would do it. I would quote Jesus' words directly, and then I would draw my application. What Luke does is he embeds his application in the words of Jesus. This is the way that the gospel writers are going to write is that they are emphasizing their own themes, but rather than draw a great distinction between the bruta facta of the life of Jesus and their applications, they just take their applications and weave them into the tapestry of the life of Jesus. The, the, I, I'll show you one other way that this happens. In fact, it's in this same uh, passage here. Do you notice that if you look at Matthew's column, there's one section where there's kind of a big gap that's there. Look over at what uh, Mark and Luke have in this, in, in place of that gap. Mark says, who, uh, for what can a man give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Look at Luke's column, verse 26. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words... Of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory. Matthew leaves that line out. Isn't it interesting that Matthew's gospel, which loves Peter, is the one gospel that leaves the line out that says, Whoever is ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of him. Can you think of why? Maybe that might have hit a little bit too close to home for Matthew as he's thinking about Peter because this is Peter's greatest failing, isn't it? It's one of the toughest moments in the Gospels. It's, a, it's the most moving place in Israel to me is a church that's called St. Peter in Galicantu. It's a Galicantu. You work out the Latin in there. Gali is the word for a chicken. And Cantu, like cantar, is to sing. St. Peter and Galicantu, this is the crowing chicken church. This is the church that is dedicated to where Peter was at Caiaphas' house when he said, I, I don't know him. There's a moving statue that they have put uh, outside of this. Non novi ilum, I don't know him is what Peter is saying in that moment. It's a moment that breaks your heart because you know that it's, it's where we would have been. When we read the Gospels, we're not Jesus. When we read the Gospels, we're the disciples. We're the ones that would have struggled. Peter was ashamed in that moment. 
And is this line that God will be ashamed of him? Did it hit too close to home for Matthew? Now, Matthew does include the story of, G of Peter's denial, so it's not that he ignores that story. But the key for all of this is what you try to do is you don't just find one passage. You find a series of passages where the same issues come up again and again and again. And eventually what you're able to do is come up with themes in these Gospels, like the Messianic secret for Mark, like the disappointing disciples for Mark, like other themes that we'll see when we are in Matthew and in Luke. All right, now, <clears throat> as in my, my waning moments here, let's tackle an issue head on. There is no question if you take this approach to reading the Gospels, that you are going to find places where the Gospels differ from one another and in places where they disagree with one another. And, and this, it, it, it presents some challenges because we want, you know, the Scriptures to always sort of speak with one voice, and God bless it, it just doesn't do that. The Scriptures speak in multiple voices. They come at things from different angles, and sometimes biblical authors even argue with one another. We'll have, you know, for example, in, uh, in the three synoptic gospels, Jesus cleanses the temple as almost the last thing that he does in his earthly ministry. In John, he does it right at the very beginning. It's not both. It's, this is a disagreement among these about the order of the events that take place there. And what we have to do if we're going to read the gospel sympathetically is to understand that they're not writing history the same way that we would write history today. What they're doing is they are writing as ancient biographers and their gospels, the, the biographies of Jesus, if that's what we want to call them, they are works that would fit perfectly within the style of writing of a Thucydides or a Herodotus or someone like that. They're writing in an ancient style. And so they're willing to, well, for example, maybe collapse characters into one or to, you know, there are places where they, they wouldn't have been around with a steno pad to write down exactly what Jesus said, so they capture the spirit and the essence of the moment of what Jesus would have said. They're willing to, you know, adjust the chronology of things so that they get the point across, because that's what, by no means am I trying to suggest that Scripture is just like a movie, but there is a certain kind of comparison that I think will make sense to you. There was a character named Oscar Schindler, I have been to Oscar Schindler's grave. If you walk out of you know, the Zion Gate in the old city of Jerusalem and walk past the, uh, the Dormition Abbey, you cross the road there at peril from your own life, and there is a Christian cemetery, and you can walk right down the hill, and at the bottom level, you can go to Oscar Schindler's grave, and you can see the rocks that are put on the grave. He was a real character. There was a, uh, a list that was made. You can go and see the list. The list is there in the Yad Vashem. It's the Israel's Holocaust memorial that's there. You can, I mean, it, it's, uh, robots would cry at seeing this list because you know that just as, you know, um, Ben Kingsley's character says, the list is a life, or, or commander and so forth. All of these things are the facts of history. When you watch the movie Schindler's List, do you really labor under the assumption that every word that comes from Liam Neeson's mouth is a direct quotation of something that Oscar Schindler actually said in that day? 
or that every word that Ben Kingsley's character, the Itzhak Stern's character says, is, a, is that something that somebody wrote down with a steno pad, or that, that everything that um, uh, Ray Fiennes says is a quote. No, we don't think that. What we expect from Spielberg and what we expect from uh, Harris, the, the author of the book, is that the way that they have written this captures the spirit of what was being said in that moment and that it is faithful to the facts writ large of what happened there. And I think ancient historiographers wrote in a similar way that to some degree what they're doing is they want to make sure that we get the point. And so their history writing is a little bit like Google Earth. You ever Googled Earth to your own house? And you get closer and closer and closer and closer until just the moment when you think you're going to be able to pick out the individual petals on the tea roses that are over there, it all blurs out. That's a little bit about how the history in the Bible is, that we can get the, the contours of it, but we break down at a certain point when we're trying to get these little raw individual. I'm over time. Let's pray, and I'll let you go. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. Lord, your word is powerful, and the... The struggles we have with it are not over a little historiographic detail. Lord, it's the challenge that it puts on our own lives, and I pray that you'll help us to submit to it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. See you all next week.